Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. You're a taste of democracy. Very good. G'day and welcome again to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. We talk a lot about reform in this country, but it turns out it is much easier said than done. Labor took an unusually bold reform agenda to the 2019 election, featuring an end to tax refunds on share income already untaxed, so-called franking credits or death taxes as the Libs had it, a tightening of negative gearing to losses on new homes only, a halving of the capital gains tax break, and, of course, a 45% cut to emissions by 2030, a cut that now seems modest but which the coalition depicted at the time as a job and investment killer. Together, these things constituted a package of considerable policy merit. Politically, however, it was unwieldy and, in the end, deadly. Regrettably, that defeat has been seared into Labor's memory, and so, from big target, we seem to be going towards small. This week, the Anthony Albanese-led opposition has ditched the negative gearing change and the capital gains tax rise, ranking credits had already hit the fence, and it has decided after much soul-searching to stick with the Coalition's Stage 3 tax cuts, which benefit the well-off disproportionately. Of course, the 45% cut to emissions has also been disavowed. We're not sure what will fill its space. Uh, We'll find out closer to the election. Labor, it seems, is correcting the 2019 election at a time when the country and its reliance on the government have undergone unprecedented change. Now, a report by the Grattan Institute looks at why much-needed reform has so often failed in Australia, and it goes back decades to work it all out. I'm delighted to welcome to Democracy Sausage the author of Gridlock, Removing Barriers to Policy Reform, John Daly. John, welcome to The Sausage. It's a pleasure. (laughs) Now, look, there are many factors at play here, policy timidity, absent leadership, political party corruption, 
a feckless public service in which departmental heads now resemble senior policy advisors in some cases, or at least are coming to look more similar to them. And I guess we can't also downplay skittish voters, which is to say that we, the electors, have some role in this as well. So let's go back to where you go back to in this report, which is often held out as the sort of gold standard, the golden period of reform in Australia, the 80s and 90s. How productive was that time, really? Well, I was always a little bit suspicious that, you know, one read these accounts by journalists and politicians and and, uh, policy wonks about the golden years of reform. uh, And, uh, you know, invariably, they were written by people who were very active at the time. And I was always a little bit suspicious that... um, they were just looking at the past with rose-coloured glasses. Um, so we act, we checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you list out the things that happened in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, we had, uh, we floated the dollar, we reduced a whole bunch of tariffs, uh, the Reserve Bank introduced inflation targeting, uh, we had the accord and the introduction of enterprise bargaining, we had the Hilmer Review followed by national competition policy, we had the privatisation of a whole series of government enterprises from the um, Commonwealth Bank to a series of electricity and water authorities to Qantas to Telstra. We um, deregulated banking so that foreign banks could come into the country and then we deregulated telcos. We had all of the ANTS package, capital gains tax, dividend imputation, superannuation, uh, the GST, of course, under John Howard. And, you know, in, uh, that's just on the economic side. On the social welfare side, you had things like Medicare and so on. Yeah, but apart so from that. There was, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of <laughs> change lot, in there? all yeah, of that. Yeah. <laughs> and when you look at the last uh, 10 or 15 years, you know, frankly, the list is just really thin. You know, we sort of privatised Medibank Private, which in the scheme of things doesn't seem terribly exciting. We did push the age pension age up from 65 to 67, which, you know, I suppose is better than doing nothing at all. But again, it doesn't seem particularly exciting. Of course, we had carbon pricing and then we repealed it. We had a demand-driven higher education system and then we effectively have wound that back. We had proposals at least, committed proposals by the government to push the age pension age up even further to 70 and those got abandoned. We had proposals to cut the company tax rate. We had work choices, I guess you'd have to say. Work choices, which we, of course, also worked back. Um, Whether or not that was a good reform is another question, but... But it was reform. I mean, it was change. It was it was hard. Well, it was hard. I guess we very clearly define reform in company with Gary Banks that it only counts as reform if it's actually a good idea. And so the way that we were doing this was that we were looking at all of the things that Grattan had recommended. Um, by definition, every single one of those has got at least one, if not more, reports flowing behind it. And look, chances are you don't agree with us on all of those, but I'd hope you'd agree that we bat better than average. And if all of these ideas that we came up with that, you know, most of them are pretty good ideas, don't happen, then you'd say there was something wrong with the system. So, yeah, short answer is if you look at the history, it really is true the 80s and 90s were much more productive. And then the other thing we did was we looked at um, the OECD. They put out a country report on Australia every 18 months saying, you know, this is what we think you ought to do. And back in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, uh, early 2000s, governments, you know, did a very large chunk of what was on the OECD's wish list. And over the last 10 years, they've done materially less. Yeah, so I guess there are a couple of things that can be said about about that. It is actually a very impressive list, as you say, right through the 80s and 90s. And there was a lot of political heat. I think some of the rose-coloured glasses, to the extent that they are worn about this period, probably forgets some of the compromising that went on, probably forgets 
you know, how difficult it was to force some of these things through and probably also forget some of the things that fell by the wayside. And there were there were a few of those, I guess, as well. You know, Hawke had some battles over things, you know, like the assets test and uh, – of course, there was the Australia card argument that uh, that 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 came and went. That was uh, you know pretty bruising. There were probably a few others as well. So there's that aspect of it. The other side of it is also that when we compare then with now, we'll often hear people make the point that has some validity that you know some of that was low hanging fruit. You can only privatise those big utilities once. You can uh, you know you only float the dollar once you know you reduce your tariff walls you do that once these are all that's not to downplay the the political difficulty of a number of those things they were they did involve and we'll come a bit later to this idea of sort of party shibboleths things that that uh, that parties uh, you know identify very closely with in terms of their reason for being and what you know, how that makes it hard but that that was really in a way the secret to a number of those. Those reforms really wasn't it that the parties in power were prepared to, in some cases, take on their own constituents. And you'd say the same thing about John Howard taking on uh, the issue of of gun ownership and the distribution of firearms in Australia. That reform involved taking on a coalition, a key part of the coalition base. So those things are acknowledged, but nonetheless, there there are many in many cases, things that you only do once. So what comes after that? Yeah, well, and I think you're absolutely right, You and indeed the, that's a point that uh, the Treasurer, Josh Feinenberg, made quite recently, that you, can, you can't float the dollar twice. But there are very long lists of things that, you know, most people think would be a pretty good idea that have been sitting there on the shelf for a very long time and making no progress. You know, if you take the Productivity Commission's Shifting the Dial report from 2017, where they identified all of the, you know, things that they thought were really important, most of those haven't happened. If you take the list that Gary Banks put together when he was asked, you know, what's what's the to-do list? He came up with a to-do list, I think, in about 2012. Most of those things had set on the shelf for a very long time at the point that he wrote the to-do list. And they're still on the to-do list. <laughs> um, if you look, if you look at the reforms that Grattan's recommended over the last eleven years, we kind of group them up. We group those into seventy-three different reforms. Of those seventy-three reforms, uh, and bearing in mind that you know we were we didn't invent these things. Most of these things have been you know kicking around for a while. Uh, of those seventy-three reforms, only twenty-three of them have happened, uh, and the other fifty are also sitting on the shelf. So there's plenty of stuff that's worthwhile. That hasn't been done. Now, by definition, it won't be what's been done in the 80s and 90s. So for politicians to say, oh, well, you know, all of the low-hanging fruit got taken in the 80s and 90s and now there's nothing left is just not true. There's just lots of stuff to do. By definition, it's different, but it hasn't happened. True. And I'm not wanting to run interference for politicians here, but it's not just about the number of reforms, but it's the nature of those reforms. Let's talk Tintac. What What are some of the things on the list now, the primary things on the list now, that you think governments could be having a crack at? Because my suspicion is that some of these things, if I can use the vernacular here a bit, aren't that sexy. They're not They're not the kinds of things that necessarily are going to animate voters uh, in the way that you know some of those reforms back in the 80s and 90s might have done so. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think, again, we've got to be careful about the 80s and 90s. You know, I didn't see anyone marching in the streets to float the dollar. <laughs> um, reducing tariff barriers was very unpopular at the time. 
Privatising all of those government businesses was very unpopular at the time and and very stoutly resisted. Um, Introducing a capital gains tax was very unpopular at the time. Heaven knows, introducing a GST was unpopular at the time. You know, like if you took a vote, if you took a poll at the time and we looked at those polls, they were pretty clear that most voters opposed GST. Now, interesting, that's one on, on which voters have changed their minds. So polls today say that voters actually think a GST is a pretty good idea. Interestingly, on government privatisation of government businesses um, and tariff barriers, they still remain opposed to them. So it was pretty hard and a lot harder than we remember back in the 80s and 90s. In terms of things that we could do now, you know, lifting the age pension age from 67 to 70 would make a big difference to budgets, it would make a big difference to overall economic output, um, make a big difference to the retirement incomes of a lot of people because essentially if they're encouraged to work a little bit longer, they'll wind up with quite a lot more in retirement. It's surprising how much of a difference just two or three years of extra work makes. So that's that's one out of Pretty 73. Unpopular. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of taxes, we've kind of talked about those, but one of the you know really important ones is uh, swapping out stamp duties and and simply raising general property taxes instead, which, of course, the ACT has done. New South Wales is making noises about doing, I suspect, somewhat emboldened by COVID. The other states have all looked at it and run away because it all just looks too hard. That's on the kind of sort of tax and welfare side. But there's lots more to life than tax and welfare on housing. We know that the right answer in terms of improving housing affordability is to essentially change planning regulations so that we make it easier to build more medium density housing. The residents always, existing residents always hate it. And so consequently, their children can't afford to buy a home anywhere near where they're living. We know that congestion pricing is a good idea. Um, You know, it is an idea that has been around a little while. Singapore introduced it back in 1985. There's even quite a lot of places in the US now which effectively have forms of congestion pricing. Um, You've got reports from people like the Victorian Infrastructure, Infrastructure Victoria, saying congestion pricing is a really good idea. Governments aren't touching it with a 50-foot barge pole. In health, I mean, there's any number of things that are worth doing, but just to take one particular example, we are still effectively paying the same prices uh, as taxpayers to do pathology tests that we did quite some time ago, even though you know the science has somewhat improved in the meantime and there's massive economies of scale and we've just been taken for a ride by the pathology companies and we're still paying the same prices. And, you know, the list goes on, right? <laughs> and, and we, in the report that we've written, we've, we've got a helpful table at the back which, which lists out all of the reforms uh, and, you know, the ones that have or haven't happened. There's a lot of them. The sort of Grattan back book um, amounts to a pile of reports that's about three feet high. And as I said, the vast majority of it hasn't happened. Well, I mean, there's, a, there, there's some good suggestions there, but there's a few things that could be said about them. And, and I think one thing that probably applies to nearly all of them is that there isn't, and look, this, as you quite rightly point out, this will have been the case with big reforms back in the 80s and 90s as well. But there isn't a strong public clamour for these things. I mean, there might be for cheaper pathology testing, for example, if uh, it, you know if the case were able to be made, and that shouldn't be that hard a case to make if it's if the technology has changed. But nonetheless, these are things that that sort of economists and policy wonks, people who are looking at it at these areas of public policy, can identify. But the, a case needs to be made to the public to really get 
you know, get them behind that. I mean, I know, for example, that as you would, that uh, lifting the pension age uh, basically makes a lot of people fearful. Mm-hmm. They they think, oh, right, now I'm going to be, you know, working, particularly for people in in jobs that involve any level of manual labour. They they're going to think that's. Uh, that's just a sort of an unconscionable extension of of, uh, of their working life beyond when they're fit and able to do so. You know that that's how it's going to be seen. So if there's a case to be made there that it has not just economy wide but society wide benefits and that it benefit individuals, then that case can be made. The land tax question, you know, the question between stamp duty and land taxes, I hear policy wonks talk about this a lot. And as you say, the ACT's done it. New South Wales is 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 apparently shaping towards that. But I don't think too many people understand why it's a good idea. I wonder if you could yeah. tell us why it yeah. is a good idea. Well, well, maybe rather than kind of going into the detail of why it's a good idea, I think it's 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 particularly interesting to look at the way that politicians have handled them. So again, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, Hawke and Keating spent, and for that matter, many of the other ministers in the Hawke-Keating ministry spent a lot of the time on the road, on the airwaves, arguing about why the reform that they wanted to introduce was a really good idea, knowing perfectly well that it was unpopular at the time and essentially trying to talk the public around. And even if they didn't get 80% of the public on their side, they at least moved them. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the some of these issues, you can actually see the polling move over time. So interestingly, on negative gearing capital gains tax, which despite what you might you know suspect from reading the papers at the moment, if you take polling on that at the moment, more people think that negative gearing should go than think it should stay. Uh, so it's in fact a popular policy to wind it back in the you know crude sense of more people like it than hate it. But if you look at the history of the last um, couple of years, as Grattan Institute and many others really kind of geared up a campaign in about 2015, 16, 17 to, to make some progress on that issue, public opinion in fact moved and moved in favour of reform. And that was despite the Property Council of Australia and the Real Estate Institute, you know, mounting quite substantial public you know, advertising campaigns and lobbying campaigns um, against it. Nevertheless, public opinion moved uh, in the direction in favour of reform. Um, if you think about John Howard and Costello over, and Peter Costello over the GST, I mean, they spent literally a year doing nothing but basically, you know, out there on the hustings explaining in public how it was going to work, why it was a good idea. Um, You know, they didn't get themselves into trouble over birthday cakes like John Hewson Um, and um, essentially arguing for the reform. Now, contrast that with the Tony Abbott proposal to increase the um, age pension age, and it was in the Commission for Audit um, report, you know, where I think it got a page or two, if that. It certainly wasn't argued in any detail. There was no detail put around it. And then it was part of the formal platform that was taken in the 2013 budget. And then it kind of like, it flopped. I mean, no one from the government sped, said a word about it in public for literally several years. Now, you're never going to change the people's mind about anything if you just sort of have this policy and pretend it's not there and don't go out there and argue about why it's a really good idea. Because the reality is politicians have an enormous pulpit in which to essentially talk to the public, as we have seen over COVID. You know, if you choose to use that pulpit, you get a huge amount of airtime. Now, it may not always be comfortable. You may have to spend quite a lot of time arguing with people who disagree with you. But like, that's kind of the point about politics. That's that's the idea, 
is that you argue with people who disagree with you and you know, the public listens on and they no doubt argue with each other. And hopefully, at least some of the time, some of them get a greater understanding of the issues and change their minds. Interestingly, I think the New South Wales government is is doing not a bad job of this on stamp duty for property tax swaps. So they have actually embarked on quite a substantial process in New South Wales. They've announced, look, this is the direction we want to go in, but we're going to consult very widely. They've they've set up this process in which lots of people are having their two bobs worth. The treasurer is out there regularly explaining why, you know, it's a good idea. It's slightly fair to Dominic. We bit hard for him to get airtime on the on the issue right at the moment, given everything else that's going on. But but he's at least trying when when he's got some space. And if you do have that kind of argument, then you have a fighting chance. But it's really interesting that that governments have almost never tried to do that over the last decade. And indeed, if we look at this list of seventy three grant recommendations, fifteen of them are unpopular. So, in other words, we know that if you take a poll, more people hate it than like it. And of those 15 that are unpopular, not one has happened. Not one. Now, that's really different from the 80s and 90s. And if we're trying to understand why do reforms not happen anymore, the fact that unpopularity has become a complete strikeout has got to be part of the story. It's not the only thing that's going on, but it's a substantial part of what's going on. Yes, absolutely, and you've called that uh, an insuperable obstacle to reform in in, um, in the report. I think it's a, a very interesting point to make, and I w- we'll return to it in just a moment. We'll take a quick break and do so in just a moment. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, we were talking about what I guess amounted, John, to a sort of a crisis in politics or a failure of leadership, that is the the, the passing into the, into history of, of politicians who were capable and inclined to use some of the political capital that comes to them from being in power, from, from holding leadership, from being in that pulpit, as you described it. We think about all those reforms that we've listed out from the 80s and 90s, and as you make the point, a number of those were, were tough fights and we saw political leaders engaging in the art of persuasion, not talking points, but persuasion, wanting to go into an interview, sell an idea, can explain it, Some, in some cases bring people along, in other cases simply get enough people and, 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 and be prepared to lose some people in the process. 
in the knowledge that they were operating, you know, in the belief, I suppose, that they were operating in the national interest, that in the longer run, people would see that this was a, a necessary change. And, you know, the GST might be a, a case in point thereof. So that's actually, I guess, really what we're talking about here is that professional politics is no longer performing uh, up to the task of uh, of driving change. I think that's right, but I think it's it's the easy way out to simply say, oh, well, it's all poor leadership, and if we just had better leadership, like that would solve the problem. Uh, because I think it kind of completely succumbs to a great men theory of history, um, to use the phrase mm. somewhat unfortunately coined by Thomas Carlyle, that that history is just the history of great men, and you know, like great men come along and they do their thing and they shape history. And I think, you know, a much more sophisticated view of history is one that says, look, obviously exactly who comes along makes a difference, but it's the social forces and in particular the institutional structures that we set up that often have a really big influence on what happens, quite apart from the fact, of course, that there's an influence of great women as well. And so I think it's a cop-out to say this is just, you know, the failure of leadership and all we need to do is kind of hope that great leaders come up again. I think what we need to do is look at how our institutions have changed and how might we change our institutions in order that we get leaders who are prepared to do this again. Because I think there's lots of things you can look at in terms of the way that our media works, in terms of the way the public service works, in terms of the way that political advisors work, in terms of what we are prepared to tolerate in terms of political behaviour, in terms of the way that the precise rules of the system are working or not working. And if we changed many of those, we would be much more likely to get leaders who were prepared to take on difficult reforms. It's not a certainty, but you at least improve the chances. And, you know, given that at the moment our track record from 15 unpopular reforms is none from 15, at least a nudge in the right direction would be helpful. Yeah, look, you make an an interesting argument there, but I'm I'm just not fully persuaded in terms of entreaties to change our institutions, for example. I mean, that's easily said, but what does it actually mean in practice? And if we think back to floating the dollar, for example, I mean, Treasury was as 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 a sort of a key institution within the public service, the key institution really within the national public service. You know, had long for a long time been quite hostile to to a, a floating exchange rate uh, that no doubt had changed by the time the uh, the you know Prime Minister Paul Ke- or Treasurer as he was then Paul Keating you know drove that reform. But um, and how do you actually change institutions? And what are the sort of institutions that you're talking about that? You know what, in material terms, could change. Yeah, look, look. In fact, I mean that's an interesting one, right? So my reading of the floating of the dollar history is that it was opposed by John Stone, who was tre- who was Secretary of the Treasury, but was actually supported by a lot of other people in the Treasury. Indeed. And of course, what that says is it was an institution in which diversity of thought was encouraged. Mm, it's a good point. And it was actually okay for smart people to disagree about stuff and to express that disagreement. And in fact quite a lot of work had been done about, well, if you were going to float the dollar, what would it look like and how would you do it? Even though that was a policy that the then secretary didn't believe in. So in terms of how would you go about changing these institutions, look, there's a long list. The place I would probably start is the FODI review of the Australian Public Service and which was effectively also a review of ministerial advisors that was completed last year. That had a long list of reforms and basically all of the ones that would have made a real difference were the ones that the Morrison government refused to touch. 
So, for example, it said we need a more independent public service um, in which there is less pressure on public servants to simply do whatever their political lords and masters think, uh, and therefore we need a much tougher process if you want to fire a secretary of a department more than the current requirements, which is simply if the current minister effectively doesn't like them, they go. And in fact, about a third of all Commonwealth public service secretaries have essentially been fired or moved on over the last decade. Now, that's appalling. I mean, that means that inherently most secretaries are looking over their shoulder most of the time thinking, I've got a one and three chance of, I've only got a two and three chance of surviving here. There are any number of things you could do in terms of the public service itself. One of those is that we used to have a system in which programs were regularly evaluated. Uh, And of course, evaluating one program is kind of halfway to developing the policy for the next one. But it's got to be a, you know, proper evaluation, which you're prepared to accept that whatever you're doing at the moment may not be right. Uh, It can't be just sort of rubber stamp, you know, we're going to bend over backwards to find that everything's okay. Uh, And one could think about some, you know, evaluations of government programs in recent years where, you know, it looked as though someone was bending over backwards to find that it was okay despite the evidence. So these evaluations used to be regular. They've been, they were always the, they've been the first things to be cut when you're trying to save some money in the public service. And there's been far fewer of them. And these days, if they do get done, they are very, very seldom public. So if you don't exercise the policy muscles to do evaluations and you don't make them public to create some pressure for reform, it's not surprising that you wind up with a public service that feels pretty disempowered and doesn't have the kind of muscles to do policy work in as much as it used to. And indeed, there's any number of now former secretaries of Commonwealth Public Service publicly saying that they don't think that the public service has as much policy development capability as it used to. So you definitely need to build that back up. I think there's also a piece around it's often public service is often not being asked to do it. So you had that now somewhat infamous speech and a very much pre-COVID speech by the Prime Minister saying essentially, you know, I would like the public service to focus on implementation and I like my ministers to focus on policy development. Whereas, you know, once upon a time, there was a view that public servants were professionals who had spent their lives in whatever the policy area was. And, um, you know, at the very least, you should be involving them in thinking about what policy change you wanted to implement. And of course, one of the other things that we forget is that a lot of the policy change that was put through um, under Hawke and Keating and Howard was put through when their chiefs of staff, so their political, notionally political advisors, were in fact senior public servants or very recently had been senior public servants. And so they were effectively brought across from the public service to work in various ministers' offices. And Don Russell, um, in his recent book on leadership, identified that group as being one of the really important things that enabled them to push through what was really, in retrospect, a very ambitious program of reform in terms of its scope. One of the reasons that that happened was that they had such a strong network of advisors. Whereas today, if you look at those advisors, only about 20% of them come from the public service. The chiefs of staff are usually people who have essentially worked their way up through the ministerial advisor ranks, as opposed to people who have come across um, with significant public service experience. There are many more of those advisors than there used to be. Most of them do not come from the public service. As I said, an awful lot of them essentially come from you know student politics. They've never had a real job, as they say. <laughs> 
And then, of course, they often become politicians themselves. And indeed, increasingly, we are drawing our politicians from the ranks of those advisors. I think a recent um, analysis found that for about 25% of all members of parliament, their job immediately before parliament was essentially in one of these political roles. And about half of them had worked in one of those roles. Now, if you kind of going back a little bit further than Hawke and Keating, you know, there is no member of federal parliament today who has actually driven a train, as, as Chifley did. One of them drove a bus, I think, at one stage, Ben Norton. <laughs> um, so we, not only do we have these advisors who are very, very focused on how do I win the media war today for our minister, but those advisors are very focused on how do I keep my record clean so that I can either get a nice job in a government consultancy or get a job as member of parliament. And so you have this enormous force of people who are focused on winning that media war as opposed to asking the question, what would be good for the country in terms of long-term policy development? Uh, and that, I think, makes it really hard. Yes, you're right. And th- and there's a lot of cleverness, almost far too much cleverness in, in, in the political caper and not enough deep thought in terms of those longer-term questions, what's in the best interest of the country. I'm really fascinated by the interplay between those two forces that you described there, that is the the sort of politicisation effectively of the senior levels of the public service by moving those uh, senior public, you know, departmental secretaries who ministers don't like, moving them on, the effect that, the chilling effect that has on the courage of those who remain in terms of being prepared to, you know, stare down a minister and say, no, minister, you are wrong on this. This is the wrong direction. This has all these different reasons why we should not pursue it. And allied to that, uh, the growth of the ministerial office itself, you know, the expansion of the number of people who owe their 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 position, their salary, their influence to uh, the political party rather than to the government and to the ministers concerned. And in my long years working in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery, my sense was that there was a greater coming together of these two halves of the senior levels of the public service and the ministerial advisers. There was a there was a growing similarity between the two in terms of the sensibility they brought when you spoke to them. Uh, and I think that's actually been a narrowing of policy options and and a shortening of the policy horizon in terms of the way yeah. the advice they give. I think there's no question that that's been happening. And the independence of the public service is not what it used to be. So Treasury used to have a thing called the Treasury Roundup in which they published, you know, a dozen articles a year about, you know, interesting stuff. And, you know, they were careful. It tended not to have immediate policy consequences, but you didn't, like, the policy consequences were usually only one or two steps down the track. And it was a substantial contribution to public debate. Treasury secretaries used to quite regularly give substantial speeches that were, you know, not really government policy at all, um, and they got away with it by saying, oh, well, I'm looking at the long term here. But they were very clearly attempts to essentially contribute to public debate. We used to have systems in which when Parliament ran inquiries, departments would make substantial submissions to those inquiries, and they would not necessarily be the policy of the government of the day. They would be the department's view essentially about, you know, what was the problem and kind of like what were the sorts of things you might do about it. And they could differ from department to department, couldn't they? Oh, absolutely. Departments would disagree with each other, let alone anyone else. And there's a very, uh, there's a lovely story that, that, that Martin Parkinson tells about how Keating once got asked on, you know, national television, you know, Treasury's just put out this thing saying such and such, you know, what, you know, like, 
what do you think about that? And and Keating said, well, well, but that's Treasury's view. That's not the government's view. Now, there is no way that today a department would publish anything that was not the minister's view. There is just no chance of that happening. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, we were happy enough to have a diversity of thought in which, you know, people put up views and the treasurer was quite happy to simply say, well, look, that's treasury's view. It's not my view. And, you know, obviously I'm the treasurer, so we're going to, you know, the government will be doing what I think. But he wasn't slapping treasury down and saying they shouldn't have published it. He was just saying that he disagreed with them. What role do you think the media play in this problem because that because media are often noted for the enthusiasm with which they point out any faint difference between ministers or between what one person says what one official says and what uh, what the what the minister might say uh, you know any division at all is is seen as evidence of dysfunction prima facie yeah look i don't think the media is helping and the reality is because of the shrinking of newsrooms we have fewer expert journalists than we used to and and when you're less of an expert in a policy area it's much harder to dissect these kind of arguments and and say something sensible and when you're under pressure to file three or four online stories a day rather than one story you you know the tendency will be to cut and paste the press release as opposed to you know dissect it properly as a journalist should and interrogate it and you know as the famous saying goes you know before you write that that it's raining you know have a look out the window first <laughs> so that's part of the problem social media obviously makes it harder the 24-hour nature of online media means that the, the arguments move on so much faster that's it i don't think there are insuperable obstacles i found it very interesting watching simon birmingham trying to navigate his schools package through uh, and there's no doubt there were a bunch of some independent schools and organisations that were running interference on that. And he was very organised. He had a ministerial office that was clearly very organised. Every time there was anything in social media saying that, you know, such and such a school was doing really badly because their funding was be cut, you know, literally, you know, within an hour, there'd be something all over social media saying, well, here are the numbers. Boom, 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 boom. This is what they used to get. This is what they do get. This is what the income of their parents is. This is why what we're doing is reasonable. So you can win those kind of arguments, but you've got to be organised and you've got to be determined. And, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that Simon took, you know, pretty substantial hit as a result of being prepared to push through that reform. And uh, you've got to be prepared to live with that and take it on the chin and say, well, this is because I'm trying to get better policy up. So no question media is making it harder. And obviously, we've got much more partisan media than we used to, and more concentrated media than we used to. And those things aren't helping either. But those, ironically, are things that we can't do very much about. So I guess one of the features of this report that we've just written is to say, look, you know, in the fame, in the words, sort of like that sort of famous Irish proverb, you know, there's a bunch of things that we cannot change. So we will simply have to accept them. And then there's a bunch of things that we can change that will make a difference. And then, of course, we need to have the wisdom to be able to distinguish between those two categories. I don't think there's much we can do to change the media. 24-hour media is here to stay. Partisan media is probably here to stay. Heaven knows social media is here to stay. There are some things we can do on social media. So, for example, the ACCC made some 
perfectly sensible recommendations about essentially applying the same standards to social media that we apply to conventional media in terms of misinformation. And I don't think that that would do any harm. Um, and it will probably do a, a great deal of good. And interestingly, I think a lot of the social media platforms are in fact heading towards that direction anyway. And I think January 6 was a bit of a wake-up call to everyone about Completely untrammeled free speech has never been part of any society and there is no reason why we want completely untrammeled free speech on social media either. And, you know, to the extent that things are simply false or defamatory or encouraging violence, then we should shut it down. We had our own uh, January 6th just a couple of days ago, it seemed. I mean, it wasn't obviously as bad nor as direct, but a lot of misinformation about vaccinations and and so forth that seemed to be fueling the anger in uh, those demonstrations in in Melbourne and particularly in Sydney, and so I think it's a good example of that. What are, one, one of the things I think that is interesting about what you're saying about uh, about the media environment, for example, is that it raises, and I agree with you, there are there's a limited number of things that we can do there, but it raises then more, brings more into uh, into relief the need for courage, purpose, commitment, persuasion by our political leaders. Now, I know you said before that we can't put all the blame on on political leaders or the absence of leadership, but but we do need politicians to recognise that they're going to have to sometimes, you know, take their beatings as they come, as, as um, Kenny O'Donnell once allegedly said to JFK. You know, some fights you're going to have that you are going to lose some skin and you've got to be prepared to do that, whereas it strikes me now that when we've got this this process of of, of kind of almost like the toxic professionalization of politics that every message is managed into a into a form into a minimalist form where it offends the the, the fewest number of people and and opens the fewest number of alternative lines of argument or interpretation and so it becomes blander and blander and more and more frustrating and 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 loses its loses its credibility and its force its ability to drive change Government is losing its own reason for being to some extent if it can't if it can't affect change in the interests of the broader community. I think that's right. And the question that we try and address in the report, and we can only sketch this out because there's only so much you can do in sort of 70-odd pages, is, well, what do we do about the institutions? So, for example, we can definitely put more controls uh, around firing senior public servants and make that more difficult, much more difficult. We can definitely put limits on the number of advisors there are in parliament. We can definitely require that more of them have a public service background and simply say there's a quota, you've got to make the quota, and if you haven't made the quota, well, you're going to have to fix that. And what about making them more accountable? Because at the moment they, they exist in a kind of a grey zone. The, the public servants might be able to be pulled before estimates committees and, of course, ministers can be answerable to uh, are definitely answerable to parliament, but they, they can be answerable to specific inquiries. But ministerial advisors tend to exist in this kind of nether region where where they have carte blanche to act with ministerial authority, but they don't carry the same responsibilities. Absolutely. What what Terry Moran, the former Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, described as a black hole of accountability. Yes. Um, so there's no question um, that we can do that. And, and ironically, we have been prepared to trash any number of conventions over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of the circumstances in which you fire a head of a public service or fire a senior public servant or the circumstances in which a ministerial is now basically not prepared to resign. I mean, it's very hard to think of any minister that's resigned for either failed policy and robo-debt, of course, would have to stand as being Mm. the most obvious example of a 
on, you know, on a charitable view, it's cost the taxpayer $1.3 billion. On any view, you know, many people have, have died as a result, and not one person has suffered, as far as we can make out, any professional consequence as a result. Certainly no one in politics has suffered any professional consequence. Any number of scandals that in the past would have brought ministers down. I mean, ironically, history does repeat itself. 20 years ago, a minister in Ros Kelly lost her office for a sports wrought scandal that was actually much less bad than the kinds of things that have been happening recently. We've been prepared to trash all of those conventions, but the one convention we've maintained is one that says that ministerial advisers can't be, you know, called to account for their actions. There's no reason why uh, parliamentary committees can't. There's no law against it. And there's no question that if a majority of a committee insisted that a, an advisor show up and answer questions, that that would be compelling. There's Legally, they have every right to do that. And there's just this convenient uh, detente between the two major parties that says we will never, ever do that. So that sort of thing would help. But I, I think there's also a lot of things that we could do that would resist the or at least try and unwind some of this professionalisation of politics. So we could make it much harder for people to move from ministerial offices into jobs where they are effectively acting as lobbyists for whatever area they've just come from. Ditto for politicians. We can make that golden escalator from politics into working for whichever you know industry you've just been regulating or pretty close to it. We can make that a much more difficult transition than we do at the moment. We can really control donations a lot more than we do at the moment. We can require that government decision-making be a lot more transparent than it is at the moment. We can, for example, the cabinet in confidence, commercial in confidence exceptions are now just being used for you know any number of things where there's no real public interest in keeping it quiet. So if politicians are prepared to essentially abuse the the exceptions that have been set up in FOI, um, well, look, we should frankly just change the FOI legislation so that we really cramp those exemptions back down. And then, of course, and this is the crucial piece to all of these kind of things, you need to have someone actually policing all of this stuff and hoping that politicians are going to police themselves is clearly not working. So that's why you really do need an independent commission against corruption. It really does have to apply to politicians as well, and it really does have to have some teeth. And, of course, what has been put up so far by the Commonwealth government is laughably bad. I mean, toothless doesn't kind of quite capture it. You know, it's kind of like a 120-year-old grandma, um, <laughs> you know, who grew up without fluoridation um, and, and who can't, you know, like, and whose jaw is too weak to hold dentures anymore. No teeth, I mean, no appetite. The, 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 the Guardian <laughs> ran a lovely piece recently working out that of, that of 40 substantial scandals over the last couple of years and, you know, be, it wasn't hard to come up with a list of 40. No. 38 of them would not be investigated by the ICAC that the federal government is proposing. Yeah. It, they it, would it, be it, outside its yeah. terms of reference. Now, that's a joke. It is and a joke. And, and it's a joke. And, and much of what happens in politics is a joke. And a number of the things that you've just suggested there would go a long way to restoring faith in the system. And I think in a sense, faith is the lifeblood of of the democratic contract between those electing and those representing. So uh, what you say makes a lot of sense. It would be uh, excellent to see one of the political parties 
more likely the opposition and opposition proposed to make some of those changes. We're running out of time, but I wanted just on that trust theme, uh, and you mentioned Dominique Perrottet before and, and talking about the, you know, the land tax versus stamp duty issue and, and perhaps using that as cover, I suppose, for using the pandemic at least as a good time in which to proceed with these changes. I'm wondering if uh, thinking in, in Canberra more than in the States, whether we are missing a, a golden opportunity here for other reforms in your view, because clearly the government's supposedly inching ever so gently towards net zero by 2050. The, you know, This is the big policy failure of our time, is it not? The energy and climate change plexus, if I can put it yeah. like that. Is the federal government wasting now a moment of enhanced trust Albeit that it's on the, on the ebb a bit, I, I guess you'd say, as a result of the uh, the vaccine rollout. But it's it's been a time when we've seen governments come back into people's lives, and uh, there's there's potential there to do something with the support of an opposition. Look, there's no question that that a terrific opportunity is being wasted um, because if you are going to take on these tough reforms, then having more trust rather than less trust from the public is is helpful. If nothing else, because often you'll get a reaction from a substantial number of people, which is if they do trust you, they'll say, look, I don't really think that the age for the age pension should go up to 70. But, you know, I trust you. You say that you are doing this in good faith. I've got no reason. Like, why would you be doing this if you didn't think it was a good idea? So even though I disagree, you know, like, I'm not going to vote you out. I'll go along with it. And that's the kind of attitude you need to build good reforms. And the reality is trust in politicians has been falling like a stone. Now, ironically, the Morrison government made a big play about how trust in government, i.e. the public service, was falling, for which there is no evidence. Trust in the public service ironically bottomed in about 1985 and has been increasing since then and is materially higher than trust in parliament or politicians. That said, trust in parliament and politicians jumped a lot as a result of the pandemic and for all the reasons that that you've outlined. And it jumped further in Australia than it did in, say, Italy, the UK and the US, I suspect because the public in Australia perceived that their governments had actually done, relatively speaking, a much better job of dealing with the pandemic. And I think that's probably true. We, We may have had a slightly easier hand to play, but we played it, no question, a great deal better. And we saw the Federation working uh, and people really rewarded that as well. They could see their political leaders at state and federal level talking to each other and cooperating, particularly through 2020. Uh, look, I think that's right. And the reality is that the state governments sometimes made decisions that the federal government wasn't very happy about. And by and large, those decisions turned out to be really good decisions. Yeah, they saved everyone. Uh, indeed. So we have had this big jump in trust in government. I don't see the Commonwealth using it. And as you say, the obvious policy failure of our time is climate change. Australia has essentially got way, way behind the eight ball. And ironically, it's not even going to help us economically. I mean, you know, you can see mm. this coming down at us like a steam train that driven by Ben Chifley, uh, that um, uh, Europe almost certainly, the US very probably, then probably an awful lot of other countries will effectively impose some form of border tax adjustment. Mm. And that is just going to be bad for Australia, given where we are at the moment in terms of having nothing that looks remotely like a carbon price on anything. And indeed, on the government's own projections, no material drop in emissions in any sector other than electricity as far as the eye can see. 
So we're just not serious about this, and we know we're not serious about it. So in that world, yeah, that's an enormous policy failure. Um, I think the interesting question is in terms of all of the institutional reforms we've been talking about, have governments got any appetite for those? And, of course, the answer is the two major parties have got no appetite at all because for the people who work for them, so for the politicians and the advisors, these reforms will be very bad. They would mean that their professional lives are much more complicated and, frankly, much less certain and probably materially less well remunerated. So they, the turkeys are not going to be voting for Christmas anytime soon. And if you look at the history of these kind of reforms, there's only two circumstances really that I've identified in which they happen. So the first is if you have an ongoing theatre in which the, the poor governance become blindingly obvious to everyone and it's running on the evening news, not just for one night, but night after night after night after night, then this thing can start to bubble to the top of public attention. So it's terrific that the Auditor General calls the government, for example, on its car parks. But, you know, that's a story that will be around for a week or two and then it will probably disappear and it will never really bubble to the top of public attention. What does work is if you have a Fitzgerald-style Royal Commission, as you did in Queensland, or if you have an ICAC, as you did in New South Wales, where you hold public hearings, and inherently that makes terrific theatre for the evening news. If you do that, then you can see the public reacting to the fact that it's on every single night. So when you have these kind of public hearings, you do wind up with enough public pressure uh, to do something about the institutions. Now, of course, that doesn't happen very often, and it usually happens when government calls a royal commission into one thing, and for whatever reason, it heads off into another direction, um, and it's then too hard to shut it down, which is essentially the kind of thing that happened in, in Queensland. The other circumstance in which we get material institutional reform is when independents hold the balance of power. If you look at the last 15 years, the only serious institutional reform we've had at a Commonwealth level is introduction of the Parliamentary Budget Office. And there's no question that in terms of fiscal policy uh, and the ability of oppositions to develop good policy, it's been immensely helpful. And the reason that it happened was that it was very explicitly part of the deal that the independents did with the Gillard government in was it 2010, in which they said, we are happy to back you, but one of the conditions, and it was all spelled out in a very public 10-page agreement, one of the conditions is a parliamentary budget office, and it's roughly speaking going to look like this. And then that's what got delivered. And once it was set up, it, it you know takes on a life of its own. My suggestion to the independents, who are already, in fact, heading in this direction because they do have a political interest in pushing this kind of thing. They're already pushing for an ICAC. They're already at a federal level pushing for, you know, substantial controls and better disclosure of donations. They're already pushing for tighter controls over lobbying and more disclosure. I would add to that list some of the things that we, the FODI re report was recommending uh, in terms of, you know, better controls over circumstances in which ministers can dismiss public servants better controls over the appointments so that, you know, we really are sure that they're appointing people for the right reasons rather than because they just happen to hold the right views, much tighter controls over ministerial advisers. You know, I can see a world in which independents hold the balance of power and they include that wish list as part of the conditions. And, of course, when they're holding the power to appoint a government, that does tend to focus people's minds, ironically, on the short term so that they wind up agreeing to those demands, which then can have a very material impact 
on the long term. Yeah. And I've been, I've, Verona Burgess for the Mandarin wrote a piece yesterday saying, oh, John, how realistic is that? To which the answer is, look, when you've got six or seven independents in a parliament of 150, their chances of holding the balance of power are materially pretty high, you know, like just roll the dice enough times and they will wind up being in the middle. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> particularly because you get recalcitrants on the fringes of those major parties who are aware of their centrality to the government's numbers as well. So you get just a, a greater power that starts to associate with those votes that could be swing votes in the middle of the chamber. That's right. And, and it's worth remembering most of those independents in the lower house are actually centrists. Yeah, because that's true. we've got single member proportionate electorates, you know, you can't get elected from the fringe to a lower house seat. You have to come through the middle. So the, the Helen Haynes and the uh, Zali Stiggles of mm. this world are inherently centrists. I mean, you know, Bob Catter by Queensland standards is probably a centrist too. <laughs> yeah, just not from this century. Um, <laughs> John, it's been terrific talking to you and it's a fabulous, uh, a very, very rich report with many uh, much quality in it, many good recommendations. It's been good just uh, sort of scraping the surface of it today with you. Uh, thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll be back next week, of course. Until then, bye for now. Hold up. 